This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Warning, the following broadcast contains adult language, adult content, frank safety discussions, and stories that might sound unbelievable. But believe me, every one of those stories is true. We didn't start the safety war, but we are going to fight to win it. For our families, for our communities, for our workplaces, and for our lives. Hi, this is Jim Polzel. This is Safety Wars. We're going to be talking about safety in the news for July 6, 2022. In case you haven't heard, so under our floating format, for lack of a better word, today we're going to be giving you a couple of news stories and then some commentary and perhaps a rant. So I have three things here that have caught my eye over the last couple of weeks. There is a facility in Ohio who is getting more than $315,000 in fines uh, and as a parts manufacturer because it continues to expose workers to dangerous machine hazards. So I get most of this information from open sources and non-copyrighted uh, sources like the OSHA website. I remove identifying information here for obvious reasons. I live in New York and there is no freedom of the press here. Unless you're paid as a journalist and 51% of your pay comes from journalism. So I gotta be a little bit careful here. This is from Ohio. An Ohio aluminum vehicle parts manufacturer cited for safety and health violations after worker suffered fatal injuries in March 2021 continues to put workers at risk. So this facility had been visited, it turns out, a number of times in the last 10 years. And eventually they had a fatality. So they had done a fatality, they were fined something like $1.6 million at which they're contesting right now. And what do you think happened? you think that they would go and address a lot of those issues that came up? No. What do you think happens? Hey, we're going to not address some issues. And this time they got whacked for lockout-tagout violations. And again, a lot of money here. So I did a little bit of research. I found some of the older copies of the older violations, which were pretty readily available. And... They ended up getting repeat violations here. Again, lockout, tagout, basic things. Some of the things that they did not do are training. They didn't follow up on the training of their employees. Probably did not update the safety procedures according to this press release. And Again, this is the fourth or fifth time they're involved with this, and they had a recent fatality here. Again, not a good start. Second story I want to share with you is from Texas. In this case, Houston, out of their Houston area office, apparently. And there was a November 2021 violation at a construction site dealing with a roofer. And on January 26th, a 21-year-old roofing worker suffered fatal injuries after falling about 30 feet through a skylight atop a Houston building, a fatality that 
the company could have prevented if they had heeded a U.S. Department of Labor citation issued one month earlier. Again, repeat violations, which resulted in a fatality, just like with the first story. Inspectors with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration determined the company failed to provide a worker with a personal fall arrest system. In November 2021, OSHA issued a citation for the same violation after inspection at a work site in Austin. OSHA issued citations for two willful violations for failing to provide fall arrest systems and a serious violation for failing to train workers on using the safety equipment properly. So this often happens with roofers especially. Doesn't matter whether union or non-union, training and updated training. A lot of the roofers, especially the older ones, feel that hey, We've been doing this for so many years, we don't need training. Or I got on the job training and none of it's documented. The other thing is, is a lot of times these companies have day laborers. They literally get people off the street and put them to work. Hey, can you do roofing? Yeah, I'll go do roofing. Hey, can you do this? Yeah, yeah. Often these companies, I'm not saying this one in particular, but this is what happens. Again, you're getting workers, lack of training, the lack of equipment, even if they know that they're supposed to have equipment, if you go and you say, hey, you gotta wear this equipment, they're not gonna wanna do this. I've spoken to many contractors, especially in the residential market, where the, you know this has not, does not really uh, work out, where they have equipment, they have training, they have supervisors that are willing to enforce safety rules, companies that actually go and care about their employees. And again, roofing industry is one of those targeted industries by OSHA because of fall hazards. And by the way, we do fall protection training here at JCB Technical slash Safety Wars. Our third story has a little bit of a personal flair here. Part of the Georgia Guidestones are damaged by an explosion. Uh, I visited the Georgia Guidestones in Everton, Georgia about 12 years ago with my brother. I think it was actually exactly 12 years ago uh, this month. And uh, apparently someone got annoyed and blew up the Guidestones and damaged at least one of them. When I was there, even so many years ago, 12 years ago, this place was under constant video surveillance. and. Probably they're going to find the person or persons that did this, I would think. And even looking at some of the news footage here on video, I'm looking at what appears to be some type of surveillance system here. What are the Georgia Guidestones? It's referred to often as an American Stonehenge. And uh, essentially they're set up uh, with astronomical significance. Astro right, I guess lined up with the stars and the solstice and the equinoxes and everything else and they have suggestions for living and a lot of these suggestions for living uh, are often incorporated into environmental issues environmental policies and big proponents for environmental policies and population control so you could go and look them up. They're written in several languages on there. We're not even sure f who commissioned this or paid for this. It's you know, part urban legend, part people ain't talking sort of thing. 
our last story. This may result in some commentary, maybe a little bit controversial at times. That's okay. We're about controversy here. How else do you learn about things without some type of controversy sometimes, without some kind of discussion? Who learns anything from agreement? No, that's kind of a boring. Hey, I think this. Hey, I agree with you. Let's move on to the next subject. Hey, I agree with you. No, maybe it's not that way. Now you have a discussion and you're able to learn, perhaps. In case you haven't heard, last week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the EPA overstepped its authority in regulating emissions of carbon dioxide from power plants. Chief Justice John Roberts stated that, uh, the, in his majority opinion, that capping, and this is a quote, capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day. But it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme. A decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. What does this all mean? Essentially, the EPA can limit emissions of certain chemicals, but forcing the industry in specific plans to adapt major changes, this is Jim speaking here now, like moving from coal-fired power plants to something else exceeds its authority. And that authority is not granted under the Clean Air Act of 1990. I'm not going to give an opinion on the merits of the detailed arguments that go back and forth with this, but let's have a little review about Civics 101. It's probably a good thing to go over, and it's not what they teach you on the Schoolhouse Rock, on the old Saturday morning TV's shows. Now, I had to explain to my kids what Saturday morning TV was. To us right we had no internet or anything else but because we don't have we did not have internet in those days we were easily manipulated we were easily you think it was easy to manipulate today with social media imagine back then where things just never got any coverage unless you were work, watching it on c-span somewhere or you were in a law library reading the federal register in hard copy rather than electronically like they did, uh, like they came out with in the 1990s, where the government went and put everything out electronically. Starting, I believe, with the Thomas system in 1995. But anyway, that's another uh, uh, story for another day. I'm not going to give a big opinion on the merits here, but yeah, but we need to go into some things. Let's have a basic review of civics. This is for the United States. We have three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. The judicial goes and decides contract law, criminal prosecution, uh, interprets the Constitution, anything along those lines. We have a good handle on that. Pretty simple and straightforward. You go to court, you have a judge, and they manage things. Great. Simple. The executive and legislative gets a little bit shady it's a little bit dark a little bit of a secret and again this is not what they taught you in school usually at least up until high school actually first time i heard about this stuff was in college believe it or not and i took constitutional law in high school at a very prestigious institution anyway 
each state and territory has the same setup. Every town in New York, where I live, every county has the same setup. You have a county executive, a legislative branch, and some judiciary people. Each one of these branches of government has separate powers on, on different levels. So you have the federal government, their jurisdiction, governed by the United States Constitution. And then you have the local levels with their constitution and Republican form of government. And even your state and local, local uh, governments have the same thing. I know in my uh, home state of New Jersey, where I grew up, they have several different forms of government. Uh, some are non, on the local level, nonpartisan, where uh, the town council elects the leader and effectively that leader becomes the mayor or along those lines. We have that similar situation here in New York with some of the municipalities. We also have various commissions, boards, school boards, and any number of things for managing local issues. And if you want to have meet all these things, then you really got to become involved in your community. If you want to meet them, try to have a, a, a small business related to agriculture. Because I tell you what, a friend of mine says there were alphabet soup agencies that I've only read about in college, Jim, right? So that showed up to my place of business here and gave me problems as I don't have a business anymore. But anyway, so we have a tradition of what is called home rule, also NIMBY, that's right, not in my backyard is the acronym, where the level of government closest to the problem or the issue tries to regulate that activity. For example, a speeding ticket is not handled by federal law enforcement, but by state or local law enforcement. EPA and OSHA regulations allow states to regulate their own programs if it's authorized by the feds is another example. Now, we have this whole thing and we have, no, how does a bill become a law? What's a bill? A bill is something a body, legislative body votes on. And usually bills are initially written in committee, but not necessarily. Again, this is a 1,000 foot, 1,000 mile, if you want to call it that, overview. And I'm sure there's nitty gritty and people are going to be like, ah, you forgot this. Uh, okay, great. I forgot it. Okay, I don't have all day for this. And you don't want to hear about it. But the committee may have hearings and debates and have people on their staff, they'll do research, submit stuff, invite people in, experts and everything else and they talk and then the staff members usually with legal backgrounds write the laws or write the bills. The committee then votes on the bill and it goes to the legislative body to be voted on. In our federal system we have two legislative bodies. I think Pretty much all of the states except for Minnesota has what's called a bicameral uh, legislative body where they have a lower house and an upper house. And Minnesota has a unicameral, meaning one house, the legislature. So we have, the on the federal level, we have the House of Representatives that are comprised of 435 members that are apportioned by population across the states. Then, so some states have one, like Wyoming, and some states have a boatload, like California, with all the population. We also have a Senate that is made up of 100 members, meaning two for each state. 
you could go back and look in your grammar school history books to figure out how they came out with that. But anyway, this is oversimplified, but if the Senate and House each pass a bill, it goes into a separate committee to resolve the differences in the bills, and then it gets re-voted on. If the bills pass with a simple majority in most cases, it goes through the executive branch, aka president, for a signature or a veto. If it gets vetoed, the legislative branch can override the veto with two-thirds of the vote and force the president to acquiesce to whether, whatever they're voting on. And there are other things in there too with like removal from office, impeachment, and everything else. I'm not going to go into that. We also have in this whole system parliamentary procedures that generally follow the Roberts Rules of Order, but they also include some other things and you know, minutiae like a filibuster, which is a vote to have a vote sort of thing. So, how does this all happen with the Supreme Court case with your with the EPA? Now that we've reviewed this, I'm going to refer to an article called "A Brief History of Regulation Deregulation" from the journal called "The Regulatory Review," and it probably gives the most concise history of regulatory agencies. But essentially, under the Administrative Procedures Act and subsequent acts, right, we're going to call it the APA. The APA reflected a fierce compromise balancing the competing goals of bureaucratic expertise and legislative accountability. Its requirements that regulations be grounded in statutory law and an administrative record that includes public notice and comment continue to guide rulemaking today. End quote. So what does this all mean? What the Supreme Court has said is that the EPA was not issued that a authority to rule on this to come up with its own policy because it's not in the regulation it's requiring fundamental changes and there's a legal doctrine called the major questions doctrine this is a major question that at least in the supreme court's opinion 6-3 did not that the epa did not have this authority long and short of it it's much more detailed than that but I'm not going to read 40-some pages on the air. So what's the overview of the major questions doctrine? Agencies often interpret statutes that grant them regulatory authority. No doubt. If an agency acts based on the agency's interpretation, that action is challenged. Courts may be called upon to review such interpretations to determine if the agency has exceeded its authority. Reviewing courts will sometimes defer to an agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute. In a handful of cases involving a challenge to agency actions, the Supreme Court has rejected agency claims of regulatory authority under the major questions doctrine when, now this is important, this is from crsreports.congress.gov, right, what I just wrote, what I just read. So, in a handful of cases involving our challenges to agency actions, the Supreme Court has rejected agency claims of regulatory authority under the major questions doctrine when, one, the underlying claim of authority concerns an issue of vast economic and political significance, and two, Congress has not clearly empowered the agency. Some commentators, as Jim talking here, 
out there and said that this is a major shift in the court's view. I don't know about that, but we'll keep you updated from time to time. But apparently, this is gonna, this is the way things are going for the time being. What's the other side? The other side of the story is that the EPA does have authority to do this for a whole host of reasons. Now let's talk about this. What, how do we fix this? This needs to be quote unquote fixed by the legislative branch getting off its rear end and actually going and voting on things rather than keep on delegating and delegating and giving ambigu ambiguous things statements and everything else that happened that now we have court battles and everything else and i think that's part of the problem with the american system is that politicians is the issue attention cycle and an issue comes to the forefront then okay we are going to act on it and in this case 1990 clean air act signed by george uh Bert, herbert walker bush as president Hey, we, we need clean air. So guess what? We're going to go. We're going to pass a statue. Then all of a sudden, voila, magic. We have clean air. Now there's no update. And then we don't have to revisit this. And things get lumped into it. You have riders. You have all different stuff that gets thrown in here with horse and pony trading. And every, the proverbial, of course. Back in the days, they probably did do horse and pony trading. But anyway, to get these things passed. And then what happens, right? I, you have the news media that reports on this stuff. Part of the reason why we have this program here is that we're supposed to give you the inside story, maybe a little bit more background. That's our responsibility as safety professionals, as environmental professionals, and everything else, is that we're supposed to be in the know. We're supposed to be the leaders here. So let, let, let's go back and get some background on here. My master's work, when I got my master's degree, was largely on news reporting and how things end up on the news and my case being a broke college student student was uh everything had to be uh, uh basically all the information you had back in the old days was on print media or tv maybe cable tv fox news was just coming out cnn had been established and SNBC was relatively new. And you're relying on these reporters to give you a two or three minute story at max or a 100 word article, a blurb on an issue. I studied environmental issues. And my whole thing was what they're commenting on is it not what's in the report. It's not in anything else. You have to be a policy wonk, which I am, to go in and interpret this stuff. This is what the issue I have. The public does not go deep into these issues, nor is it interested in that. And now we're being asked to support policies, to vote on things, and everything else. My question is, if you go back with this EPA Supreme Court case here, what you read on the news, the normal news, that a normal person is going to read, not me. Did he hear any of this? Did he hear basic civics? Most people didn't even know what uh, this past weekend, what we were celebrating here in this country, July 4th, Independence Day. They just knew that Independence Day was on the 4th again, a lot of people. Only a one uh, uh, poll 
out there that said only 37% of people actually know what Independence Day is, about what country we got our independence from. I think that was uh, from a certain demographic. Anyway, I'm not going to pull what they pull. So now it's important for us as a society, as safety professionals, as environmental professionals, to get down into why are we doing this? What are we doing? Why did the Supreme Court case come out? This isn't like it was pre-internet days where, we, whoa, we have to accept what people say. We could go in there. We can actually read. We can actually learn. And if you use a lot of what we talk here about on Safety FM with uh, leadership, you can impact things. Now we know what we need to do. Congress didn't authorize this? Well, okay, now we can work towards Congress going and authorizing this. Maybe there's another way of going about it. All different options are in there. But again, you need to know what's going on. Just don't go out there and say, oh, look, uh, Republicans good, Democrats bad. Democrats good, Republicans bad. And who are the Libertarians? We have an interview coming up with uh, one of the heads of the Libertarian Party uh, on this podcast. But anyway, all this stuff going on, go a little bit deeper. Learn. Continuously learn. Spread this knowledge. Spread this information that you have out there, that you have in that head of yours. Go out there. Be the leader you're supposed to be. And if you do that, you're going to win that safety war that we're always so passionate about about winning. For Safety Wars, this is Jim Polzel. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.